being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 47 imperial japan part 17 the pre-war japanese communist party part one bukharin yamakawa and fukumoto today i'm recording from harbin So we've followed the inauspicious start of the Japanese Communist Party. I think so far we've seen their entire network get arrested twice now. Folks, it's not going to get better from here. At least not until after World War II. But let's talk about Japanese liberalism for a second. Japanese liberals didn't identify themselves in opposition to conservatives or to the state. Instead, they identify themselves in opposition to the socialists. According to Linkoeva, their quarrel was less about economics, but rather it was about national priorities. As she frames it, Japanese liberalism wanted a national orientation, while socialism had an international bent. In a song as old as time, Japanese liberalism failed to capture the imaginations of more and more of the student class and there were no real strong champions of Japanese liberalism. There were constant defections, and most of the people who defected from liberalism either went far left or far right. Japanese liberals argued that class warfare was simply incompatible with the Japanese mind, and that Japanese society was too healthy to fall for something like communism. Keep that analysis in mind, as we talk about the rice riots in the summer of 1918. The rice riots occurred over the inflation of rice commodity prices. Many people on the left and the right saw this as a prelude to revolution. The rice riots involved over a million people and required a mass mobilization by the state to put it down. The riots killed at least 30 people, and the police arrested 5,000 rioters. At trial, it became clear that these were not leftist revolutionaries. They were literally hungry peasants. The riots brought down the Terauchi government. If you'll recall from prior episodes, that was the guy that overturned the elections and, you know, in association with the Waseda revolution farce. Tarauchi, of course, also famously the quote about whipping Koreans with scorpions, right? So with that level of analysis that Japanese liberalism brought to the table, it's hard to imagine why they weren't attracting more more prospects, right? Remember, Japan's too healthy to fall for communism. Now let's talk about the Japanese public's conception of communism in the 1920s. The general understanding, like in newspapers and like in the general public, was that communism was essentially a foreign threat. It's interesting, right, because in almost every country, communism was viewed as a foreign threat somehow. Bureaucrats referred to communism as like a plague or an infection, which was a very common way of talking about it. Now, the rice riots deeply freaked out the ruling class, who was also privy to intelligence suggesting that the imperial army was very demoralized over having to put down their own people, in addition to them losing in Siberia, right? 
with the expeditionary force. Now, in the aftermath of the high treason trial, the Japanese police set up the Special Higher Police Unit, also known as the Toko. The Toko were responsible for surveilling leftist movements. Around the rice riots, this program was expanded. The rice riots caused Japanese elites to develop a bill in 1921, the Bill for the Control of Extreme Social Movements. Interestingly, it was explicitly modeled after English sedition laws. It failed to pass in 1922, but a modified version passed in 1925. We have talked about this law, the Peace Preservation Law of 1925, which explicitly criminalized anyone following Bolshevism. In addition to the Peace Preservation Law of 1928, which imposed the death penalty on anyone intending to alter the national polity, also known as the Kokutai. It also imposed a minimum two-year sentence on anyone wishing to move Japan from a capitalist system of private property. Mind you, that is a two-year prison sentence for a thought crime. Not coincidentally, they also enacted universal male suffrage in 1925. See, that's how you maintain control. You increase the repression, but also loosen the pressure. So the peace preservation laws were concerned with Kokutai, the national polity, and specifically they were oriented around not changing it. However, whenever you have a law, there needs to be pretty strict definitions about, you know, how to quantify it, right? How to define it. The problem was that the concept of national polity involved both judicial and ethical spheres. And ethics is generally not even in the realm of jurisprudence most of the time. And national polity had never actually been defined, legally speaking. When drafting the law, the politicians did not distinguish between anarchism, socialism, or communism. And, of course, there are worlds of difference between them. Like, from a certain standpoint, no, there's not, right? But, like, realistically, those are worlds apart. Also, the lawmakers could not define what exactly was being defended with this law. No one could actually clarify what they meant by the fundamental structure of society or the national monarchical polity. While they were debating this law, someone pointed out, rightfully, that Japan had previously assimilated all kinds of foreign influences, like most obviously Confucianism and Buddhism. But that line of argument did not get very far with the politicians. At the end of the day, the law was oriented mainly around attacking foreign influence, foreign propaganda, foreign funds, foreign agents, and this is pretty rich. They ended up defining national polity as the right to private property. So it is, I suppose. Now, defining these things on the books, that's one thing, right? On the streets, of course, that's another thing entirely. A toko manual said, anyone against our system is not only disloyal, but ceases to be Japanese. If that weren't enough, Toko agents were active in major cities across the world. 
including places such as Beijing, Shanghai, Harbin, Berlin, London, New York, and Chicago. This, of course, is separate from the Kempeitai, as the Toko was run by civilian secret police, and the Kempeitai was military secret police. Thank God we have separation of powers, right? Let's talk about the Japanese Communist Party, and I will call them the JCP now and again. By the way, I should specify that the question, what is to be done, is an incredibly difficult question, and I am not backseat driving here. The Comintern definitely made multiple massive mistakes. So too did the JCP, though literally everyone would be hard-pressed to identify which were the mistakes and which were the correct decisions, what the correct line was at any given point in this entire history, right? Even now, it is very hard to understand which path would lead to victory. And it's really hard to take any juncture and say that was the right decision, that was the wrong decision. So keeping that in mind, I'm going to go through various decisions that the JCP and the Comintern made. But keep in mind that almost everyone in this story changed stances on crucial positions several points throughout this entire history. And I would also just add, like, your explanation of what was the right decision or the wrong decision probably says more about you than it does about the JCP, ironically. This is such a hard thing to talk about. Or complicated, not hard, right? Now, a good place to start would be with the Comintern Conference of 1922. This happened to be the fourth Comintern Congress. The JCP wanted to form a united front with the bourgeoisie in order to do a two-stage revolution. The Soviet delegates were not sure about this plan. At this stage, they considered Japan to be a main imperialist power. This position would be reversed by Stalin in a few years, right? Like we talked about that, I think, last episode. E.H. Carr said, Japan was both the Britain and the Germany of the Far East. However, the Comintern's understanding of Japan was both muddled and or undecided, because Japan was included in both the list of Western imperialist countries and in the list of colonial, semi-colonial countries. Like, the Comintern wasn't really for sure, like, they didn't really know what to do with Japan. In analyzing Japan, however, I do think they got closer to the truth when they looked at the emperor system. The Comintern viewed the emperor less as the country's supreme political figure and more as the grandest of the semi-feudal big landlords. From what I've been able to tell, this sounds correct. At this juncture, the Soviets thought it was unnecessary to focus on the emperor system as the focal point of communist struggle, because they thought capitalist development would eventually sweep it away, as it tended to sweep away other monarchies. Mind you, this is in the 1920s, where it looked like all monarchies would eventually be swept away. That, of course, did not end up happening, right? 
Now, as of this point, there was a pretty big disagreement between the Soviet state and the Comintern regarding the policy of united fronts. Nikolai Bukharin disapproved of united fronts, but the Soviet state encouraged them, mostly based on the needs of the Soviet state. Maybe I should define what united fronts are. United fronts are the idea that communist parties should ally with liberals, social democrats, other socialist groups, even anarchists, right, and typically engage in some sort of electoral process, but essentially doing mass politics in a united front, right? It's sort of embedded in the term, but I guess I should have defined it. Now, like I said, at this point, Bukharin was disapproving of united fronts. The Soviet state encouraged united fronts because of the needs of statecraft. This meant that the common turn at this juncture in history was more radical than the Soviet state and more in line with the radical Bolsheviks and the international socialist movement. Specific to Japan, the Soviet state did not want to push the JCP against the monarchy, partially because Japanese troops were literally still on Russian soil as of when this conference was occurring. In terms of theory, the JCP was fixated on debating where Japan fit within the Marxist-Leninist historical framework. This had massive implications on their tactics. So, like, getting this right did kind of make sense, because it dictated everything you would do, right? Like, the concept, like, at least theoretically, Marxists should have their theory down and then derive their practice from where the theory says they should go, right? We all know that that's not always what happens, but... Theoretically, that's what you're supposed to do. So, the JCP was trying to figure out if they needed to do a two-stage revolution, whether that model applied to Japan or not. They needed to figure out whether they should fight the monarchy or not, the emperor system. They needed to figure out if they should go with legal parliamentary work or illegal underground activity. Another complicating factor was that United Front tactics in general were associated with Leon Trotsky and his clique, while Bukharin and Stalin were forming a bloc against Trotsky. It would be reductive to say Bukharin and Stalin endorsed more radical tactics simply to oppose Trotsky, but it would be ahistorical to say it had nothing to do with it either. Tatiana Linkoeva argued that the Comintern was being pushed left by Stalin in abandoning these United Front tactics. However, one of the leaders of the JCP, Hitoshi Yamakawa, he wanted to have the JCP go with United Front tactics. Yamakawa wanted the JCP to create a system of proletarian political education, to infiltrate and radicalize unions, to infiltrate and radicalize peasant organizations, and to infiltrate and radicalize the military, to eventually seize power and eventually create a dictatorship of the proletariat. That said, Yamakawa had a 
fundamentally Kautskyist framework. He believed that socialist parties would eventually merge with the labor unions, which didn't end up happening in most parts of the world, right? Now, we will compare and contrast Yamakawa's framework in a little bit. I think it would be good to read from the Japanese Communist Party's program of 1922. Not the whole thing, but specifically the section called Korean, Chinese, and Siberian Questions. It's about three paragraphs, please allow me. The Communist Party of Japan is resolutely opposed to every species of imperialist policy. It is opposed to the intervention, open and secret, in China and Siberia, the interference with the governments of these countries, the sphere of influence and vested interests in China, Manchuria, and Mongolia, and all other attempts and practices of a similar nature. The most infamous of all the crimes of Japanese imperialism has been the annexation of Korea and the enslavement of the Korean people. The Communist Party of Japan not only condemns this act, but is taking every available step for the emancipation of Korea. The majority of Korean patriots fighting for the independence of Korea is not free from the bourgeois ideology and national prejudices. It is necessary that we act in cooperation with them, necessary not only for the victory of the Korean Revolution, but also for winning them over to our communist principles. The Korean Revolution will bring with it a national crisis in Japan, and the fate of both the Korean and Japanese proletariat will depend on the success or failure of the fight carried on by the united efforts of the communist parties of the two countries. The three principal nations in the Far East, China, Korea, and Japan, are most closely related to one another in their political, social, and economic life, and thus bound to march together toward the goal of communism. The international solidarity of the proletariat, and particularly of these three countries, is indispensable to the victory and emancipation of the proletariat, not only of the respective countries, but of the whole world." Unquote. So you see, while the JCP has been charged with some degree of chauvinism with regards to China and Korea, their position was vastly superior to any other political groups in Japan at the time. That said, Yamakawa and the early JCP viewed Korean and Chinese leftist movements as too nationalistic and Yamakawa essentially denied the priority of anti-imperialist struggle. This stemmed from him not identifying the Japanese masses with the imperial state. This is not an easy question, is it? And this is a fundamental question that is relevant to many countries today. Certainly to the United States, right? This is such a complicated question, because as of 1922, I think there was an argument to be made that the Japanese masses really didn't have a lot to do with the imperialist exploitation of Korea, but certainly well into the 30s and 40s, it was hard to deny that they didn't. Like, this is almost like a 
essentially the same thing as the whole Settlers J. Sakai thing with the U.S. proletariat, right? Like, really interesting stuff. It's interesting how this is, like, this question is still very relevant. Now, common turn conferences are one thing, right? But let's not forget that the entire JCP was arrested in 1923, like we talked about last episode. Those who were still free, which consisted mostly of students and activists studying abroad, they all reconvened in Harbin to discuss what they should do. They agreed to wait. And many of those who were arrested in 1923 got out in 1924. They held a new conference in 1924, and they voted against re-establishing the Japanese Communist Party. Sounds counterintuitive, but formally establishing it provokes the wrath of the state, because the party at that time was illegal, so it would open them up to immediate prosecution if it were discovered. No, this group of people wanted to work through trade unions and create a legal mass proletarian party, so they voted to dissolve in 1924. The Soviets and the Comintern, however, were specifically pissed off about this decision because it was the exact opposite of what they decided to do at the Comintern conference in 1922. The basic problem was that the people in charge of the JCP at the time, which is Yamakawa and his clique, they fundamentally didn't believe that the JCP even needed to exist. The Comintern, therefore, ordered the party to reform, and so elements within the JCP staged a battle against the Yamakawa clique. So the Japanese Communist Party at this juncture, like the mid-1920s, was basically paying no mind to peasants, weren't trying to work with peasants for the most part, at a point when Japan was still mostly peasant. The JCP was not attempting to harness any elements of nationalism whatsoever. Those are two easy observations about why the JCP was getting, like, absolutely nowhere. Separate from the fact that there was, of course, fierce levels of police repression, and from the Yamakawa position that the JCP didn't even need to exist. That said, the Japanese communist movement was growing all the time, and they were in a much stronger position relative to the socialist movement in general. They were in that stronger position over just non-Marxist socialists because they had several publications, they had common turn money, and they had a stronger richer analysis of the situation. What's more, the Japanese communist movement, which was estimated to be around a thousand people in the entire country at the time, was beginning to split. And you know we got to talk about the split. The split was largely between two of its leaders, Hitoshi Yamakawa, who we have talked about, and Kasuo Fukumoto. First we'll talk Yamakawa, then we'll talk Fukumoto. So Hitoshi Yamakawa was the JCP's first theorist and one of its primary early members in the 1920s. He was the de facto leader from 
roughly the early 1920s into around 1927 when, you know, that's when Fukumoto basically took over. So Yamakawa, like we talked about, wanted to work within unions and create a legal mass workers party. Without ever identifying as such, Yamakawa held positions that were more closely aligned to Trotskyite methods. We're talking specifically both the United Front tactic and Yamakawa's general strong internationalist orientation. Also, because universal male suffrage came out in 1925, Yamakawa thought that a legal party was a real avenue for victory. Yamakawa also did not believe in two-stage revolution theory, and he planned to have Japan jump immediately and directly to proletarian rule. You know, basically like Lenin did, arguably. And this was, like, an interesting thing, right? Because it meant that they planned to do what the Soviets did, but not what the Soviets said was necessary to do, which is ironic. Fukumoto, on the other hand, he called Yamakawa and several of Yamakawa's clique, he called them Bolshevist communists rather than Marxist communists by which he was referring to Yamakawa's anarcho-syndicalist roots. Fukumoto asserted that Yamakawa hadn't even read Marx. Like, bro, have you even read Marx? Which was why Yamakawa kept turning to social democracy rather than understanding the need for, like, a more orthodox Marxist-Leninist orientation. By the way, the claim that they had not read Marx appears to be correct. <laughs> Fukumoto was nothing if not pedantic. His writing has been called Japo-Germanic. He was said to write like Marx or even Hegel, though he had a subtly fierce independent streak. Fukumoto even took to critique Marx and Lenin on certain relatively orthodox points. Fukumoto argued that Japanese Marxism was failing because of theoretical errors and misunderstandings of Marxism. He argued that the first task of the labor socialist movement should be to separate and correct their theoretical errors before entering the mass action phase. Because if you don't have your theory down, you know, anything you end up doing is going to be wrong. Fukumoto specifically borrowed from Lenin in theorizing this. He quoted Lenin as discussing separation and unity. You have to distinguish yourself by the correct line before you can obviously go to the masses and show them how correct you are, right? So Fukumoto argued that they needed to purify the party so that the movement could move on with greater theoretical unity. And to an extent, this actually makes sense. Like, why exactly is the Japanese Communist Party being led by people who haven't read Marx and who don't seem to advocate what Marx or Lenin were saying, right? By 1926, the Fukumotoists were in control of the JCP and several of its left-wing organizations. 
they also re-established the secret illegal Japanese Communist Party as per the Comintern instructions. The Yamakawa faction protested, but they did not hold the stronger position, so the Yamakawa clique continued to infiltrate leftist groups, such as the Japan Farmers Union, which by 1925 had a membership of 70,000. They also infiltrated the Japan Labor Union Council, which had 59 unions and a total membership of 35,000. Now let's talk about the Bukharin Theses of 1927. So, Nikolai Bukharin issued the Comintern Theses of 1927, which is a bit of a misnomer because he was not the sole author. He developed them with assistance from J.T. Murphy of Great Britain and M.N. Roy of India, among others. The Theses talk about quite a few things, but they were prompted by the famous massacre of Chinese communists by the Kuomintang in 1927, which was a very famous incident. It's a very complicated story, and I'm not going to go into it at great detail, though it deserves that level of detail. But the long story short is that the Comintern advocated a tactical alliance between the Chinese Communist Party and the KMT. The KMT turned on them. Now, there's a perceived element of hypocrisy here because Stalin and Zinoviev argued for those United Front tactics with the KMT. But then, Stalin and Bukharin blamed the failures on Trotsky and Zinoviev, which Trotsky and Zinoviev could not argue against that much because it was their tactic too. This is a complicated question, but Basically, this same massacre also arguably contributed to the eventual Sino-Soviet split many years down the road. Like I said, the whole affair deserves a much deeper treatment, but I'm trying to stay focused on the JCP. Now, if you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, Jimmy, didn't the Comintern advocate against United Fronts, like earlier? Why, yes, yes, they did. Either way, the Stalin-Bukharin bloc now advocated even more strongly for restructuring, reforming, and re-strengthening militant communist parties across the world, rather than going with United Front tactics. In the 30s, more and more, the Comintern was arguing against alliances with social democracy and socialists, and were more and more calling them social fascists, right? As Bukharin saw it, Japanese imperialism was getting stronger and more aggressive, and it appeared to have the support of the Japanese public, which, as far as I can tell, is true. Bukharin believed that a revolution in China and or the Japanese empire failing could provoke the types of changes necessary for Japan to experience revolution not unlike what happened in Russia. Bukharin argued that the JCP's main struggle, therefore, was to fight against Japanese imperialism in China and to prevent a possible war with the Soviet Union. Bukharin's theses of 1927 provoked Yamakawa to break with the Comintern. This was a long time coming, as Yamakawa 
had felt that the Soviets would always value the Chinese Revolution over Japan and its needs, which was in some ways true. But in other ways, China was closer to revolution, and it was not clear that Japan was close to revolution, right? You see what I mean, though? Every question in this whole episode is so sticky. In a lot of ways, Bukharin's analysis sounds correct, except... Yamakawa didn't want to fight to undermine Japanese imperialism. He wanted to fight to seize power in Japan. Nobody enjoys being a revolutionary defeatist. It's not a popular position to take, especially in Japan in the 19, you know, entering the 1930s. And Bukharin's analysis also clearly happens to serve the Soviet state's needs, which was not lost on the participants, right? And the JCP did not necessarily enjoy being told that they needed to focus their efforts on helping China. You know what I'm saying? In Bukharin's theses, he acknowledged that previous Comintern strategies had failed in Japan, but he still told Yamakawa that Yamakawa was wrong about the need for a legal proletarian party. Bukharin wrote, The new JCP must be steel-like, ideologically mature, Leninist, disciplined, centralized, and a mass communist party. He said that they needed to focus on defeating the social democrats in Japan who spread parliamentary illusions and who were helpmates and camp followers of the pseudo-liberal bourgeoisie. Which, you know, I'm a fan of hating on the social democrats too, but I would probably argue that the social democrats were not exactly on the upswing in Japan. Interesting, right? Now, if you're thinking to yourself, damn, Fukumoto must have felt very vindicated, well, you would be wrong. Bukharin managed to piss off both Yamakawa and Fukumoto. He would severely criticize them both. While Bukharin's theses argue that Yamakawa did not fully appreciate the role of the Communist Party in the labor movement, the theses also argue that Fukumoto made an error in attempting to separate the JCP from the masses, as the practical effect of Fukumoto's theory was that they had abandoned the struggle to capture the hearts of the workers to the center and to the right. As Bukharin wrote, the proper approach was to fight from within the labor movement, not separate from it. They charged Fukumoto with not understanding that a broad proletarian mass org was the only base for the Communist Party. They charged Fukumoto with misunderstanding the difference between parties and labor movements, Arguably, Yamakawa also was guilty of this. They charged Fukumoto with placing an excessive value on intellectuals and of being overly sectarian. As a result, the Comintern fired Fukumoto and his clique. They selected an entirely new central committee for the JCP. They had fired both Yamakawa and Fukumoto. The interesting thing to me is that Yamakawaism and Fukumotoism were basically a rehash of the 
Menshevik-Bolshevik split, except with the complicating factor of the Comintern being in the mix. Over time, it is entirely possible that Yamakawa could have achieved the kind of electoral successes that Karl Kautsky and the German Social Democrat Party achieved. Or, over time, Fukumoto could have developed into a sort of V.I. Lenin type figure. Or both, you know, we don't know. Whichever approach you identify with more, or think was more likely, Yamakawa or Fukumoto, it is hard to argue that the common turn didn't fuck up both approaches in what I can only call the classic too many cooks in the kitchen syndrome. Complicating this analysis, however, it is hard to argue that Bukharin's analysis was wrong, either. In some ways, the common turn seemed to have a correct read on things. Electoralism was probably not going to work for the JCP in the short or medium term, as we will see. And Japanese imperialism was still quite popular. Yamakawa simply did not believe that the JCP needed to exist, so it's hard to endorse his positions at all. Fukumoto should not have withdrawn from the labor movement. All of these things are true. This is the eternal problem that the communist faces. Did you fail because your analysis was wrong, or did you fail because material conditions were not favorable, and because you're fighting a Herculean battle? I don't know. Who was right? Yamakawa, Fukumoto, Bukharin? None of them? All of them? You decide. The book the Japanese Communist Movement, 1920-1966, talks specifically about the China fiasco, the massacre of the CCP, right, and of the Comintern's pendulum policies. And I quote, The Comintern, and more particularly Stalin, had to find an explanation for the Chinese fiasco that would exempt Stalin and the international communist movement from blame. The technique the communists resorted to has become standard, and indeed is one that always had great political utility no matter what the cause. By first lashing out at the right-wing opportunists, then striking at the left-wing adventurers. Common turn authority usurped the center. It did not matter, of course, except to those involved that the center was a constantly shifting one, defined by the common turn alone. Nor was it relevant, again, except to those involved that the Comintern policy had created, indeed demanded, policies that led to right and left mistakes, as those were subsequently defined. From an impersonal perspective, the Comintern managed to find indigenous scapegoats in the process of correcting its errors and redefining its policies in the light of continuously shifting dictates of Soviet national interest and international experience. The book continues, saying, Comintern policies should not necessarily be characterized as wrong, but rather as involving certain clear paradoxes that could not be resolved. The paradox between the high premium on a united front and the constant emphasis on struggling for the control of the proletarian movement 
a struggle that tended to make the Social Democrats the most deadly enemies. The paradox between the emphasis on completing the bourgeois democratic stage of the revolution and the insistence on a militant revolutionary ideology and program. The paradox between the emphasis on capturing and using the nationalist movement and the demand for absolute obedience to the directives of the Comintern. These and other paradoxes affected the entire Asian communist movement, as did the basic pendulum-like swing within the Comintern from moderation to radicalism and back. Unquote. Now, Yamakawa's faction didn't just disappear. They had a publication, which they retained control of, called Rono, or Labor Farmer. He and his faction stayed at the paper, and they kept working within the organizations they had infiltrated. By 1930, they considered themselves fully independent of Moscow. Yamakawa never identified himself with Trotsky, though the split did occur at the height of the Stalin-Trotsky struggles within the Soviet Union. Many of the important leaders of the Japan Socialist Party, which would become important in post-war Japan, had ties to Rono and the Yamakawa clique. The JSP were staunchly Marxist yet not communist. They would morph from a national but not nationalist communism into a left socialism. They have a very interesting legacy. Perhaps we will talk about them in the future. The Yamakawa faction, more and more independent from the Comintern, attempted to push a legal communist party strategy. They engaged in elections while maintaining their communist allegiances, right? They said, you know, we're going to the masses, we're going to tell them we're communist. And that's how we'll win. They passed out handbills proclaiming their positions. They did not hide their views whatsoever. They used slogans like, Establish a worker-peasant government, or Long live the dictatorship of the proletariat. There were even handbills that contained the line, Overthrow the emperor's system. There was frequently violence at their rallies. Now, the 1928 elections, that's what we're talking about. This was a very important election because the electorate went from 3 million people to 13 million people because of, you know, universal male suffrage, right? So in the 1928 elections, all of the legal left-wing parties completely ate shit. They got, like, under 5% of the total vote. They elected virtually no one. <laughs> the Yamakawa clique started a proletarian mass party which split within six months. What's worse, within a month after these elections, the cops rounded up 1,200 people, mostly from the Yamakawa clique. They prosecuted all of the leaders, they prosecuted everyone in all of the aforementioned legal parties, and they sent them all to prison. They completely decimated the legal parliamentary movement. I guess you could say Bukharin was right. This is when the Japanese Communist Party enters the cool zone. <laughs> 
but that's for next week. Four sources today. First and foremost, I used the book Revolution Goes East, Imperial Japan, and Soviet Communism by Tatiana Linkoeva. I also used the book The Japanese Communist Party, 1920-1966 by Robert Scalavino. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Please check out my Patreon, where for $5 a month, you can get additional content. Many call it a great value. Now, I need to be on my way to Moscow. See you next week, and God bless.